Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajj Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I will reiterate, re- reiterate again, because I suck at enunciation today, um, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. We are a pair of friends. And you can find our work all over the internet. In fact, I'll get Ben to let us know where you can find his latest articles. Ben, go for it. You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Driving Line, at Inside Hook, and in the September issue of Car and Driver, uh, if you can find that on the newsstands. Whoa, physical media. I'm impressed. It's still out there. (laughs) And you can find my work at autotrader.ca, as well as driving.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot. Ben, we've got some pretty cool cars to talk about this week, and I'm going to take the first um, step of the podcast. I drove the new Toyota GR86. What do okay. you think of that? So uh, the GR86 used to be the GT86? Uh, yeah, or 86, depending on, or just Toyota 86, depending on what market you are in. And that it's used also... to be the Scion FRS and the Subaru BRZ. That's right. Okay. And so whatever, uh, I mean, these are all the Toyota variants of the car. If you're going to get a Subaru version of the car, it will and has forever been known as the BRZ. And GR stands for something so ridiculous, I can't believe I'm about to say it, but it's Gazoo Racing, right? Yes. Everyone by now is familiar with Toyota's um, really not obscure racing team, right? (laughs) Gazoo Racing, which is why they included those two initials as well on the Supra, because everyone calls it the GR Supra, right? Yeah, everyone totally calls it the GR Supra. I mean, we just call it the Supra all the time. I've got a GR Supra tattoo, and I was like, make the GR bigger and more prominent because that's that's what everyone remembers. Um, Gazoo Racing, that's right. I think they're. I do think it's funny that they killed the Scion brand a few years ago, and now seem to be going into a direction of a new brand that seems even more obscure than Scion was. But, I mean, it's good that this car exists. It is a rear-wheel drive, relatively lightweight uh, coupe with a manual transmission, and it's designed to be fun to drive, and these cars are few and far between, right? So we can't be cynical about the name too much, because the package that is attached to is something that everyone claims they want to buy, but few people actually do until they're on the used market, and then everyone buys them, and I'm guilty of this as well. Okay, so... Right off the bat, I need to tell you the things I don't... The one thing I really don't know about this car is how much it's going to cost. They say under $30,000 US, which is a reasonable price point. The um, the earlier models were, I think, about five dollars or $6,000 cheaper than that um, when they first entered the market. So I think maybe Toyota, either there's there's been inflation, there's been more demand. Toyota might be pushing this as more of a premium product rather than the Scion that it was based on before. But I'm not sure if thirty thousand is the sweet if under thirty thousand under thirty thousand is the sweet spot or not. I think it still is, and um, they've made some pretty important improvements all the way around. I think you and I have both discussed this. The biggest criticism with the car was not price, but um, power. Right. Uh, that was the criticism from some people. There were people who thought that it didn't have enough power. There were people who claimed that the power delivery was a little weird. There's the famous, what is it? There's like a gap or a hole in the torque delivery yeah, from the that torque engine. Yeah, the torque dip. 
The torque dip is what it was known as. Yeah, and uh, then there's other people who just, you know, look around at the rest of the market and are like, why is this the only sport compact performance car that doesn't have a turbo? <laughs> right. So um, I think the the new model, this 2022 GR86, is attempting to address that big criticism. But it doesn't go very far in that in that attempt. But it is very effective what they've done. They've replaced the old 2-liter four-cylinder boxer engine with a 2.4-liter four-cylinder boxer engine. Um, and that bumps up the horsepower to about 228, I believe. And the torque... Um, now measures in at 184 pound-feet of torque. Now both of those in, those those increases are pretty good. The power the the power increase is about 20 horsepower, about 10 percent, and the torque increase is about 30 pounds-feet, which is about 20 percent, which I think is pretty good. And then better than that, as you mentioned, there was a torque dip in the old motor, somewhere around 3,000 RPM to about 5,000 RPM. It felt like the car was not really going anywhere. That has been smoothed out. There's peak torque happens at 37 RPM and continues um, and, and continues pretty flat throughout the rev range. So that honestly, the car feels so different with this powertrain. It is livelier. It feels it feels a lot like you know when the ND2 happened, the Miata ND2, the engine revision. Yeah, there? that was a really dramatic difference. I found uh, all of a sudden you had an engine that wanted to rev and had power up high, whereas before it was kind of a more of a muted experience, and I, I didn't think it would be that much of a difference until I actually drove the car, and I, w- I was shocked. I feel like this is more or less the same um, in that same sort of, this is a big bump, uh, sorry, a noticeable bump. It may not seem like a lot on paper, but in the experience, the motor is is really an enhanced part of the car, and it still stays true to that character of the vehicle, and I think that's really important. Um, but the same old things still apply. It's got a six-speed manual transmission. It's, you know, the, the clutch um, has been revised. It feels a little bit more natural now. Um, and it stays relatively lightweight, um, although I think this weighs in at around 2,800 pounds. I mean, that's, that's very light. Uh, what was the previous generation? It was around 2,700 pounds before. But I will point out that the previous model had a spare tire, and this one doesn't. So maybe was that's it a 100-pound spare tire? No, of course not. But I mean... Um, in addition to the new, the, some other um, weight savings, they, they've added more aluminum in um, throughout the body panels. Um, I think that you know they had to do something when they added the bigger engine, and they've shaved weight in other ways. I, I hear that there's a, there's what they took all the seatbelts out, and mm-hmm. the airbags are filled with nitrogen now. Yeah, because that's super light. Uh, I thought it was helium at first, but you're right, nitrogen. Um, really important um, right there. No, <laughs> they didn't do that at all. But I will also add that I know this doesn't make a ton of difference, but the new motor is far less fuel efficient than the old one. Significantly so. Um, about two miles per gallon over overall um, per um, transmission. So I think that's a that that used to be a pretty a pretty important part about the old FRS and BRC is that it managed to get like. 26 miles per gallon or 27 miles per gallon um and i think this one is is less is far less so it seems unlikely that that is entirely the result of a newer engine do you think there's also a gearing issue that's kind oh, of not issue but i think they've re- revised the gearing as well okay and, and we should also point out that there is a there is an automatic transmission version of the car yes um it comes with a six-speed automatic transmission and this automatic version gets all of the subaru um, eyesight goodies, so lane keeping, adaptive cruise control, and forward collision warning. 
which I think is is pretty cool for those who don't want the manual or want a more um, accommodating or commuter friendly um, sports car. So what's the take rate on the automatic version of this car? Because to my mind, oh, if, yeah. if you're buying this car, it's because you enjoy driving. If you wanted a grand touring car or a coupe that was designed for commuting, you would pick anything else. Right. I do believe that the 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 last time I checked the a couple of years ago the take rate was quite high for the manual and pretty low for the automatic. I think that's still the case. I think it might be seventy percent BRZ um, sales are manual. Okay, and I think that's that's pretty reasonable. I think that that really does call on what you're saying. What what do you want to know about this thing? I want I want to I want to know exactly how it compares to driving your car. I want to know if it's as fun as your car is, and if it's something that you would consider upgrading to, or if you even consider it an upgrade. It's definitely an upgrade. I'll say that. Um, it is refined in every single way, every way. Um, it has, the, the power delivery is much better. The shift action feels a tiny bit more um, improved. There's a far nicer interior to it, including more technology, Android Auto, and all that jazz. Um, and and even the way it sounds, although I'm 100% certain that this is a fake sound in the in the cabin because no boxer sounds like this, I don't think. I, 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 I truly believe that there's some sound, what is it called? Performance sound. Enhancing pleasure. thing? Yeah. There, is it like a tube or do you think it comes through the speakers or? I believe there is a dedicated speaker that plays uh, engine noise. A single speaker. Yeah. Can you upgrade that speaker just to have it sound like a V12 or a, a V8? I would prefer a rotary, but you know. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> um, I do think it's a it's an upgrade in every way. I think steering is 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 something that I needed. I need to get a little bit more track time with this car to understand if the steering has been dramatically changed. I think um, there was a little bit of um, a dead zone uh, in the center. And a little bit of numbness over certain types of road imperfections. But overall, the car reacted to the steering input very well. And I think this is a really interesting thing to point up. We've always complained about electric power steering, modern electric power steering, steering taking away the feeling of the, the road and the wheels. That's true, right? You, you've said this. I've said this before, right? Yeah, it's, it's deadening. There's not a lot of feedback. Um, and it can feel really artificial and detached. I think that sports cars like the 86 and other cars that have very good power, uh, electronic power assisted steering manage to avoid feeling dead because they have such a stiff and communicative chassis. It's not like you feel what the car is doing through the steering wheel completely in this car, but you feel it through every other part of the car, like through your butt, which sounds weird, but it feels like you know what the car is doing just based on feel um, through your other senses as well. Is that strange to say? I mean, I would have to experience it, I guess, to kind of get what you're saying, because it does sound a little bit strange. Because to me, like, okay. a steering feel is something that's complementary to the other types of feedback that the vehicle is giving me. Okay, so what I'm saying is that the other kinds of feedback seem so much more intense and communicative and descriptive that the steering is allowed to be a, is allowed to be muted a tiny bit. In this car, I definitely noticed that the, the, the steering was different than my car. And I would call it more refined, but others might call it um, a little bit uh, more not. So I also need to add, I also need to add a, another difference. The car I drove, the, the premium version, features 18-inch um, wheels. They are pretty high performance. They're Michelin Pilot Sport uh, 4 tires. 
And the previous mo- the base model uses these 17 inches, uh, 17 inch wheels that are wrapped in Michelin Primacy HP, which are they have low rolling resistance um, for a sport or a summer tire, and that's what I'm used to. Um, so if you like, it seems like the premium model seems to be a little bit sharper in terms of its response, and I was expecting something a little bit more looser, a little bit more tail happy. Um, and although you can get this car to stick its tail out. Um, you'd probably be it would probably be far 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 easier in the looser tire if that makes sense. My other question for you is, I mean, so you've established that this does feel like a substantial upgrade over the previous generation car, but mm-hmm. is the GR86 still relevant in a market that has exploded in terms of options? I mean, when the GR, when the GT86, the FRS, etc., when those came out, I want to say about ten years ago, sport compact cars were kind of in a lull. There wasn't yeah. a lot of really cool stuff out there. There certainly wasn't the range of super quick turbocharged hatchbacks and sedans that we're seeing. I mean, just recently, I think as recently as this week, Hyundai finally announced the Elantra N. It's going to have some like 276 horsepower. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that an Elantra has that kind of power, uh, that would have been 50, mis- 50 more horsepower than this thing. That right? would have been mystifying 10 years ago when the, the GT86 and, and its kin were a new concept. So, in comparison to the market now, is this still a relevant vehicle or is this something that's kind of outshined? Is this something that only people who are going to go to a racetrack are going to enjoy? Or do you think on a daily driven basis, this is also a fun car? I think both are true. Um, I don't. I, I think that this is for somebody who is an enthusiast, automotive enthusiast, through and through, would consider taking their car to the track. I don't think I'm alone in saying that because Toyota themselves will be giving uh, a complimentary one-year membership to um, the National Auto Sport Association. Okay. Um, so they, I think they expect people to go um, track uh, or at least to go to some lapping days and enjoy their car. Um, it, that reminds me of, like, the Veloster N or the Civic, type, the Civic Type R, which I suppose is on the way out now that there's a new Civic in town, right? Yeah, I mean, on the way out slash new version coming in, but... Uh, um, I do think that these are different markets, though, right? Like, I think that those hot hatches still have the element of being practical. That's the whole point of being a hatchback, having the extra doors or something like that. Um, and these are less compromised. The, the, the 86 and the BRZ are less compromised. They're rear-wheel drive. They're lightweight. Um, they're meant to, to be the sort of pure sports car, um, even though they're not super powerful. And, that, and that's the smallest demographic for sure. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. Affordable absolutely. convertibles, I think, that's probably the smallest segment of the market. I, name an affordable convertible that's not a Mustang or a Camaro. That is currently on sale? Yeah. Miata, that's it. Exactly. So that's... Right? that's I mean, it used to, there used to be so many more. Um, although I think the Beetle convertible and like um, EOS, or whatever it was called, Volkswagen used to have some some participation in this exactly and there was always the sabring too right but yeah. that's, that's been gone that's been <laughs> gone for a while now that. so you have these you have so that's the i think that's the smallest segment of the market and then you have i would say arguably sports cars like affordable Light, sports cars lightweight rear wheel drive sports no, cars even even take those things out of the equation and you I have you have some, mustangs right? you have mustangs yeah. you have camaros you have supras no i like that super Supra is still a thing how much is a super though? It's it's not that cheap. Exactly. Yes. 
So I, mean, I would a Mustang can be expensive, and a Camaro can be expensive. Sure, but they don't have to be. You can still get like relatively good handling, cheap versions of those cars. So, it, it, but it is tiny. You know, you had the 370Z until this year as well. So, mm-hmm. like, the it's playing to an audience that has shrunk to a huge degree. So I, you know, I wasn't optimistic that it would get a second generation. Now that the yeah. second generation's here and they really seem to have doubled down on what the car is all about, they haven't yeah. tried to make it something different. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering how relevant it is. I think it's still relevant. I think people, I think the, uh, as more and more crossovers and electric cars arrive on the scene, people are, the enthusiasts are going to be more vocal about what they actually want and what they're willing and how much they're willing to spend. And I think we might see more and more um, affordable enthusiast cars. Because Are you seeing like a backlash? Like no, enthusiast cars, okay, but I feel like the enthusiast car space has been filled by these turbocharged front-wheel drive and all-wheel drive vehicles. Yeah, there's got to be something for everybody, though, right? Like, a, a, a you sounds so sad. He's like, oh, no, because I think I, I always think when I first was bu- considering buying my eighties, my FRS. I also considered a Veloster Turbo because I thought, you know, they were kind of in the same class. They cost about the same. They had about um, similar, similar, similar levels of power. But then the more you drive one compared to the other, you realize that the 86, these 86 platform cars are high performance. Like they're built from the ground up to be performance cars, while the turbocharged Veloster is meant to be a, an economy car with, with more juice, really. But now uh, we're in a world where the Veloster N exists. And, and the Veloster feel- N has been built, I guess, with the focus of being on the track. But that has compromises too, right? That, that can be completely um, unsuitable for the daily commute due to how stiff or difficult it is, right? I mean, sure, for some people. But you could maybe make that argument about the G- GR86 as well. Yeah, I think the rear-wheel drive platform thing really does make a difference for, for enthusiasts. It does for me. Um, I also need to add that it's interesting to call this a second generation because the platform is essentially the same. Um, it's been, you know, stiffened up in a, in a number of ways, but essentially the same platform. Uh, it's not any lo- longer or wi- any wider and um, or significantly longer or wider and generally the same car. They've managed to make do with with everything that they had before. That's how good I guess the platform was before. And they just modified it and made it made it all like made it feel so much better. And it's also indicative of, you know, the financial commitment they're willing to make to this car. Again, I'm, I'm concerned about that because this is, I don't know if this is like, they're doing it together. This is a, this is a collaboration. This is Subaru and Toyota, apparently. Um, and by that, I mean, from what I understand, Toyota funds this and Subaru goes, heck yes, we'll make it. Uh, <laughs> we can get one too. Um, and that's what they that's what they do. They serve their markets as as needed when this collaboration doesn't seem. And I, and I guess the longer this collaboration continues, the more fruitful or more money it will it will lead. But maybe fewer cars will be sold um, because I think most people buy the car in the first year. It's it's it, it arrives. Right. Yeah, that's typical for uh, sports cars. Um, so the I, I don't know. The, the thing is, Subaru and Toyota have collaborate on other things now i think they're going to be working on an electric car next and you know this is a it's collaboration is is necessary these days and it's interesting to hear to hear and see toyota which is one of the biggest comp- car companies in the world push forward with the collaboration in different markets in different segments in different um 
well, maybe not different markets, right? They're both they're kind of niche markets. They they're pushing with Subaru with electric vehicles. They tried a long time ago to work with Ford on electric trucks um, or hybrid trucks, and they're working with Subaru and BMW for performance cars. So well, maybe yeah, this, these are the small. These are the, all the small segments. Yeah, that they're collaborating on. I look at Toyota's lineup and I see that they they don't build either of their two sports cars. You know, yeah. So it, it, it clearly not a priority for that company something they feel like they need to have in the showroom. The BRZ and the and the um GR86, I understand that. The Supra I don't because that's, you know, uh, that is a halo nameplate from their past. We've had that conversation already yep. on the show. But but I mean, we can talk the same thing about I mean, I don't know what you want to call the Fiat Mazda co- collaboration, but they a complete indicated. total mess that made no sense at all. That's what I would call <laughs> but it. But they've also said similar things that this car would not exist if it wasn't for the collaboration. And maybe that would have been for the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a burn. Anything Come else on. you want to say about the GR86? The No, we have to go back to that. The, the ND Miata is really decent. Like, no, it's really I'm not good. talking. No, I don't think the ND relied on the Fiat version existing. I'd never heard that. They needed the They did need they did need the collaboration. For the that's 12 people who bought the 124? Apparently, man. Like, Fiat's inv- investment and involvement in it was necessary for Mazda to, to to make it as dramatic or, or as big of, a, of an improvement as they did. One of the least attractive cars of the past decade. The car still drives, even the Fiat still drives well, right? Oof, no, it doesn't. That turbo, it's like an on-off click switch with the accelerator. It's really, uh, really like not fun. I transmission in that. Is that weird? It's a, it's a, it's a more substantial feeling tra- transmission. It is it. weird that you like it. I don't like the fact that it feels and sounds like a vacuum cleaner at high revs. It doesn't, <laughs> like, you rev it high and you don't get any more power. It's just a really, really disappointing overall experience. Wow. Okay. We're talking about another car here, though. I'm sorry. Are you going back to the GR86 now? I I just wanted to ask you if you wanted to wrap up the GR86. Yeah, sure. I think it's um I think it's good. I think it's it's great that they made another I don't know if we want to call it a generation, another step in or or plateau of the of the platform. I'm eager to see what the BRZ is and what the differences between the two are because they can be kind of subtle, but I've heard that they're they're doing a few more things beyond just tuning and having some hardware being changed between exchanged or difference between the two especially in terms of sus- suspension geometry altogether which will be interesting okay so all right i drove a niche vehicle you must be driving something a little bit more mainstream right no i drove something that is even harder to find on the streets uh and not only that it's a vehicle that i think is overlooked in almost every way by the people who can afford it and that's the 2022 or 2021, I'm sorry, Lexus LC500 convertible, Sammy. This is a fantastic car. Um, I can say that because it looks fantastic. The coupe was great. It sounded awesome. Um, looks crazy. Why is nobody? Why is nobody talking? I always. It always seems weird that you and I, whenever we talk about this car, we feel like nobody else in the world is talking about that. Is this true? I think that all other auto journalists talk about this car on a near constant basis. I think that if you were to poll journos about. I just said that the 124 was one of the worst-looking cars of the last decade. I think the Lexus LC, whether it's in Cooper convertible form, is perhaps the most beautiful, uh, definitely the most beautiful Lexus ever designed, and one of the best-looking cars ever of the current millennium that we're in, and definitely the best-looking grand touring car that you can currently buy. Uh, And I... 
does it get better when you remove the roof, when you take parts away from the car? There's definitely a lot of things that get better with that top down. The other, you know, it's not just the fact that the Lexus is so arresting in terms of its styling. Like, I, I compare it this way. The, if you look at Grand Touring cars around the $100,000 mark, you're looking at stuff like the 8 Series, you're looking at the 911, you're looking at the F-Type, um, and you're looking at, oof, I guess, the SL from Mercedes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these cars have adopted kind of a brutal, muscular, intimidating type of design language. There are cars that are big looking. There are cars that look tough. and Impressive too, right? Like- yeah. The, the, on the other hand, the Lexus looks like basically someone took a metal brush and just drew it out of calligraphy. It is all angles. There is a little bit of muscle in it, but it's really it a flows. It's right? a flowing detailed design that doesn't try to intimidate anyone around it. It just looks gorgeous. And I find it stands so far apart, not just from the rest of the Lexus lineup, but also everything that's priced at right around the same point. So that's one big. What point. is that? What is that price point again? It's one hundred eleven thousand. That's where it starts. Yeah, okay. Even the nine eleven. So the nine eleven isn't hasn't bulked up as much as some of the other Grand Touring cars. And I'm putting it in the Grand Touring category because. You know, there's so many varieties of 911 that you can... Yeah, do. like 400. There's yeah. like literally 400 ca- I, I think it's kind of a, a stretch's belief to call the Cabriolet a pure sports car. You know, like it's yeah. it's not designed for that. So um, even the 911 is a little big big looking these days. Whereas the, the LC is just so graceful. But th- there's another factor, Sammy, about this car that makes mm-hmm. it so different from all the cars I just mentioned. And that's the fact that it has a naturally aspirated large displacement V8 engine. So it's got a Mustang motor is what you're saying. No, it has a far more refined Mustang motor. It, it's I mean, a, it is a 5-liter V8. It's Toyota's des- or Lexus's design. And it 400 it and, great, right? 471 horsepower. Um, I forget the torque number off the top of my head. Let me see if I have it here quickly. It's enough. It's it's a Rolls Royce enough, right? Yeah, sufficient. I believe is the term <laughs> they used to use. But um, it it sounds incredible, and with the top down, you could hear it so much better than you can in the coupe. The other cool thing, they don't make a hybrid version. You can get a hybrid LC coupe. It still looks good. It drives okay, but it doesn't have the same emotional experience. The V8 only convertible was a fantastic idea. And and I just said emotional experience, and I kind of want to expound on that. I find that this is a very emotional car. You, I made a connection with this car in a way that I very rarely do. Wow. Um, especially considering it is not very You guys fun. are friends on Facebook? We are more than friends on Facebook. We're about to go Facebook official, Sammy. Ooh, okay. This is a car that is not very focused as a sports car because it's not a sports car. It's a touring car and it never tries to be a sports car. It doesn't want to do laps. It doesn't have like a crazy launch control system. It doesn't pretend that it's going to be quicker than whatever is parked beside you at a red light. It just focuses on being super comfortable providing a great ride, looking and sounding fantastic, and being pretty damn quick. And I love the like fact... like the chillest car. Like, that's yeah, what it is. It's, it's super no chill. Pretensions. It's no Yeah, but it is a, a $100,000 Lexus. How can you tell me that such a product could be un, in, like cannot be pretentious, right? It, it doesn't do any of... Somehow it does it. It has BDE, I think. It doesn't do any of the stupid stuff that other Grand Touring cars do to pretend that they're sports cars. Like, it doesn't have crazy crackle from the exhaust. It just oh, has yeah, a really great exhaust sound. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have uh, a stupid DCT transmission that lurches around at low speeds. It just has a 10-speed automatic. And yeah, you can use the pedal shifters if you want. And it has a Sport Plus driving mode. And I use that all the time because it gave me the best sound. It let me blip the throttle on downshift, which is all mm-hmm. I'm going to do with those paddles. But it never... It was never difficult to drive, even when it's in its most quote-unquote aggressive setting. So I really appreciate that. It's a car that's comfortable in its own skin. The interior as well, just as gorgeous as the outside. It's so detailed. The leather is incredible. The surfaces are amazing. It's a really fantastic experience. Um, I'm gushing about this car because I really love it. If There are very few cars on the market I would buy, and this is one of them. Okay, I need to talk. I need to go on a, on a small tangent. The flagship vehicles from Lexus. This is the LC. This is one of them, and then there's the LS sedan. And neither of these cars are getting a lot of attention. Well, that's because the LS sedan is really not great. What happened there, right? Like the LS used to be a pretty good uh, option for those who didn't want to get a German um, flagship sedan. I think, and, and then all of a sudden Genesis came in with the G90 and was like. We're going to do the LS better than Lexus ever did, and, and we're going to make Lexus, it cheaper, and it's going yeah. to look better, and you're welcome. <laughs> and then Lexus is like, oh, no. But Lexus well, is like, the- but, but twin turbo V6, but, but V12 yeah. power with V8 Nobody efficiency. Nobody knows about this twin turbo V6. <laughs> and, okay, so then the the poor um, LS got sh- overshadowed by Genesis and other vehicles in its class, and even though it has the same interior and somewhat similar exterior styling as the LC. Oh, not even close to exterior style. I think... Design so, language is there. The design language is there, but the dimensions of the LS sedan just don't work. I think that okay. on most Lexus vehicles, the st- the design language is often portrayed as being overwrought. Mm-hmm. It, like a little, It's just a little bit too much. On the LC, it's somehow more restrained. And it just works. Uh, it's called L finesse, right? That's that's what they call it. Uh, and the LC, I think, is one of the few cars where it has really worked. Um, the RC, it kind of works there too, a little bit. The I think. RC was a mess of a product. I don't like talking about no, it. No, I, I mean just styling wise, it is a total yeah. mess of a product. But styling wise, I think it worked a little bit from a design perspective. But uh, again, the LC works because it stands so far apart from everything else. At, at Lexus, like it's it's a very honest vehicle from a drivetrain perspective, and it's an arresting vehicle styling wise, and it's it's super comfortable inside. It's like I look at this car, and I'm like, why isn't every single Lexus like this? Because <laughs> why if you look, isn't every car you make exactly like the LC500. Let me what explain. Does that mean? It, it, yeah. it, it, I'll explain it because if you drive an 850, an M850i from BMW. Oh, yeah. It is exactly the same as a 3 Series or a 4 Series. Like, there is a lineage of those cars. It is bigger. It is more luxurious. It trickle down. Yeah, it's faster, but yeah. the DNA is the same. The, you can look at that car and understand the evolution in the showroom. If you're in an LC, it is so unlike anything else they have that I'm puzzled. And I look at it as maybe a beacon of a future where Lexus builds really, really cool cars um and i'm not so sure i think you've hit something that you didn't realize you you were talking about when you said that the lc is comfortable in its own skin despite having um no fancy features like dcts or turbochargers or anything like that when we go to the one of the more entry-level vehicles the is this is a car that i me personally complained about being um not very modern 
But you said it doesn't need to be all those things when it when it drives pretty well. And I can see that the emotional or the 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 characteristics there are are they're transitioning a little bit, right? I mean, I don't know. I when's the last time I drove an IS? Not so long ago, man. <laughs> are we having another trailblazer moment here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I I think that it's okay for the LC to to stand apart because they sell so few of them. It's a Halo car. Uh, the convertible is an even slower seller than the coupe. I think the coupe is also fantastic. I would probably buy the coupe. Um, okay. The trunk is a lot more functional. Uh, oh yeah, I hear about this trunk is probably one of the. There's two. There's two d- deadly issues with the IS. Uh, yeah, with the, the LC. Sorry, the the trunk? trunk is quite small. I, I mean, grocery shopping. We were able to fit four bags back there, <laughs> so that's not great. It's very shallow. It, it. The cool thing is though, in the coupe, it extends into where you would store the top for the convertible, so you get a lot more space, and the shape is very useful. The don't, other, or don't drop the top while you've got stuff in there. No, it doesn't. It has no effect. It's okay. it's you just lose that space regardless. It's unfortunate. Um, but the uh, the other terrible thing about this car, and it truly is terrible, is the infotainment system. Right. Every time we talk about Alexis, we have to talk about how horrible the touchpad is. But I really want to drive it home with the LC because it was so bad. I had to have my passenger adjust the climate control and the entertainment stuff while we were driving because I didn't feel safe using it on the road. That's how bad it was. It was dangerously distracting and that's yeah. terrible. There's no need for it. It, it, it's the only dark cloud on the beautiful blue sky of the LC 500 convertible. I mean, ideally you just turn it all off. You, you go for a drive and come back home. Like that's the way the L, the LC kind of nah, works. No, man, you got to have your tunes, bro. You got to have your tunes. Come on. <laughs> that's true. But and the other thing too is like if you want to turn on see, here's here's where it gets complicated. So it was very very hot when I had the car. I want to say it was around 100 degrees, 95 degrees and it was very humid. And okay. um I wanted to turn on the cooled seats. To do that, it's like a menu within a submenu within a submenu and you're using oh, the great. trackpad. And then you have to like wheel the trackpad up and down to adjust the fan level on the seats. Just make it a button, guys. But, I mean, all of that to say is it's not just music and stuff. It's like very basic commands that on other vehicles are easy to access that Lexus just makes a nightmare. It's a shame. I mean, there are no perfect cars, I guess. But this one is so cool. It's, I think it's, as you mentioned, it's comfortable in its own skin. It doesn't make you feel like a like like a, like a jerk. You don't feel like you're overcompensating for anything. It doesn't feel like it's overcompensating for anything, anything like that. It just works. It just does everything, and it's super chill. Like it's it just, it's, it's, it's one of those weird vehicles that's not a supercar, but feels like one, like the BMW, yeah. like the BMW i8 was, where yeah. like there's something about its character and its personality where you're driving it, and you realize that like no one else is driving this car. <laughs> like yeah. you're not gonna, no one's gonna pull up beside you in in a different color, the same color, and be like, hey, how you doing? You should join our club. It's, it's not gonna happen. Um, the other thing, I, you know, the naturally aspirated aspect. Every other car at this price point is a turbo, which means the exhaust sounds a very specific way and the power delivery is very similar. This is an engine that you wind out and you get rewarded with a great sound at all levels of RPM and you also get, you know, linear power delivery. You don't have like a super flat torque curve that starts at 1800 RPM and then never changes. So it's a different experience and I appreciate that as well. Um, Anything else you want to add about this car? I, I will add though, it's, Getting harder. There are so there are a few um, grand tours at this level, right? Like Lexus has almost put themselves in this in this almost Aston Martin like um, category. No, I don't think LC. it's no, it's not Aston Martin priced. I mean, you're still fifty grand away, right? From like, right. A, but I mean, experience wise, 
Yeah, experience-wise, I think that this, it's not as sporty as an Aston Martin, but that's by design. So you have to decide what that means to you. Um, Also, at this price point, I think you're starting to look at vehicles like the M4, which is probably not that far away with options. So, again... A BMW M4? Yeah, I think the BMW... Is $100,000? Well, I'm assuming you can... Why wouldn't you be able to? Where have I been... The full time. <laughs> I that mean, sounds way more than it should be. I I will look right now, but it wouldn't surprise me if oh, you could man. option an M4 up to that level. But does does that shock you somehow? Yeah, that sounds like a lot of money. It, are my, I mean, it is a lot of touch, money, but that doesn't am I mean... touch with value of cash now? That sounds like a lot of money. I'm looking at the M4 convertible because that is, you know, I'm, I was driving the convertible. Yeah. yeah. So here we go. But uh, it, it is a lot of money. But I want to say that the LC separates it because it's not a focused sports car. Yeah. You know. So again, it's something different at the same price range. So there's a lot of choice when you're spending a hundred thousand dollars on a vehicle. There are so many different options. You could also just buy two cars. You could buy three cars. <laughs> or three. You're right. I don't know how I didn't think of that. <laughs> so here's what's funny. If you try to build it oh on the God. BMW site, it says, sorry, there was a problem. Please try again later. So. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want people knowing that an M4 costs 100 grand. It kind of feels that way. <laughs> All right. Let's, get, uh, let's move on with, the, uh, with, our, with our episode here. We have some questions from listeners. Oh, Sammy, right? I made it work. I want to... I want to um, Oh, you use that edge. Use that Microsoft. Well, okay, a base four series coupe. Yeah. An M440 is sixty five thousand. Yeah. So that's, that's already cl- that's already quite a bit. But that's still half the price of your expected. Yeah. All right. Let's okay. let's move on. Um, we got a we got a uh, an email from a listener. Um, Blake messages us and says uh, the new Z looks really interesting. They they did just release the new Z recently. Um, and he's kind of bummed that there's so much of the last Z in it. And they use a specific type of uh, limited clip differential that is a bit disappointing. Um, he wants to know what do you guys think of the new Z? And what vehicle are we looking forward to driving in the next year? Well, I think that the new Z, to me, I mean, design-wise, it doesn't really stray too far from the previous generation. From the side, especially in the front, it looks very much like a 370. I think at the rear, it's different. The interior is also different. Uh, I think Nissan had almost no money to accomplish this project. And the fact that it exists at all is kind of indicative that there was a real push from the inside of the company to make this happen. Um, There's a really good story on Motor Authority by Joel um, Fetter. Sorry, is that how you pronounce her last name? Sorry. Go for it. Who who explains some of the details behind... Um, the development of the Z. So shout out Motor Authority and Joel. That was a really good story. It was a good story. And uh, I, you know, the, my other thing about the Z is I really like that engine. I like that engine in the Infinity what, Q400. What, what do they call it? Red Sport 400? Yeah, this Q50 and Q60 Q- Red Sport 400. It's, it's a great motor there. Um, I am looking forward to driving it in the Z. Mm-hmm. In terms of what I'm looking forward to driving over the next year, I want to try out that F-150 Lightning I'm very curious about it. Yeah. Uh, Sammy, what about you? Hold on. I want to get back to the Z. I need to talk about this. I want to answer. I want to no, 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 sorry. You missed the Z boat has gone. <laughs> okay, great. Um, this is going to sound really pedestrian, but I am looking forward to driving the new. Uh, no, you can talk be- about the Z. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know what the rules are. Am I hosting? Are you hosting? Let's get this. 
Um, the Z, I actually am really looking forward to. I don't think I'm I'm that disappointed because I kind of liked the outgoing Z. I just thought it was it was feeling and looking dated, and they spruced up the parts that I didn't like, which was the interior and the overall look of it, and they added a new powertrain to it. Yeah, However, but I, it I don't like heavy. that it weighs, yeah, it weighs 200 like, pounds more, right? Granted... Power can be overcome with good. I mean, weight can be overcome with more with good power sometimes and good suspension. Um, but we'll see how that turns out with a with a what is it called viscous coupling or viscous LC, uh, LSD, which might not cope well with that much weight. Uh, yeah. So what what are you looking forward to driving, Sammy? Uh, a little bit more pedestrian. I'm looking forward to driving the new Chevrolet Bolt as well as the Blackwing CT4V and CT5V, which I think will be interesting sort of um exam it, it just goes to show like gm general motors like product pr- strategy is all over the map they've got these affordable electric cars um on the chevy side they've got this incredible unobtainium um super heavy electric suvs in the hummer and then somewhere else they've got these super high performance manual um cadillacs which is weird to me i'd like to drive a ct5v as well i think that'll be pretty interesting ct5v blackwing sorry uh also shout out to gm for replacing the batteries on every bolt uh which it's uh, which it just committed to do i think this week or last week because of the fire risk so every bolt that has been sold to this point is going to get a new battery pack okay and then um do we have another we have another email from um a listener do you want to help me get through this one here yeah, sure. This is from Steve, and he had a bunch of questions for us. So we're gonna, Steve, we're gonna go through these lightning round style. First of all, no wait, Steve. Thanks for thanks for sending us such a good. Yeah, email. it's really great, and and I liked hearing about the story about the exotic car rental. Um, th- those places have always been fascinating to me. Uh, there was one that was near where I live in Montreal, and every time I would show up, like they would, uh, they used to run their event just before I would do like my Monday night track days. Yeah, and that's what they do. and those those cars were so bejanked, like they were yeah, in they were bad beyond. shape, like smoking and like no, like they'd be missing two or three gears. Like the guy who ran the place did not keep them in good repair. Um, but you, well, we're gonna do these questions lightning style um, from from your message, which again it was uh, it was great to 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 read those stories and get the background on your questions. Um, you asked us. If we were at one of these exotic car rental places, or we had the choice between a C8 Corvette and a and a Gallardo, a Lamborghini an automatic, which one would we pick, Sammy? Um, what would you do? Uh, C8 any day of the week, and they're convertibles too. <laughs> okay, C8. Yeah, I would take the C8 too. Uh, I know that Steve, that's what you picked. Um, just I think it's a, a, a Lamborghini of that era. The driving experience is, I think, um, a little rustic. <laughs> yeah. It's nostalgic now. <laughs> and uh, Steve also had a question about a first pickup truck. And this is a really good question because when people think, oh, I'm buying my first truck, I got to buy new. No, you know what? You can go back in time. You can go way back in whoa, time. Whoa, whoa. We can go back in time? Yes, Sammy. I will show what you how. Hell? Well, there's a closet in my house and I go in and when I come out, it's a different time. Or maybe that's the movie oh. I saw with Bill Nye in it. Yes. But uh, and regardless, you can go way back in time because there's this whole – I mean right now the market is kind of crazy and prices on used cars and trucks especially are, are pretty high. But there's a, like 20 years at least of vehicles that are reasonably reliable, especially if like Steve, you're going to you know use it for truck-like stuff and you're going to be working with it and maybe aesthetics aren't a big deal. Um, so he was asking about Ford Rangers from the early 2000s, uh, whether this is a good idea – whether it's good to drive with in the snow as a rear-wheel drive vehicle or whether you absolutely need four-wheel drive, 
and whether you would choose the three or the four liter V6. So, Sammy, I'm going to take this question because I had like a late 90s, early 2000s Ranger. I had the four liter with the five speed and four by four was a single cab. It was a blast to drive. It was so much fun. It was a really honest vehicle. It was reasonably quick. Uh, I had a terrible oil leak in mine because mine, I the story behind how I got the truck was my father had some apartment buildings at the time. And they were near a university and occasionally students would move back home and they would move really far away and they'd be like, hey, I don't want X thing anymore. Can I sell it or do you want it? And one of them was this Ranger and he sold it to my dad for like a couple hundred bucks. So that'll give you an idea of the shape it was in. But I needed a truck at the time. So I bought it from my dad for like no money. I replaced the windshield, did a little bit of stuff on it. And um, it was in... It had not been maintained and I had zero problems with it. Aside from, you know, the oil smoke, it ran all the time, even in the winter. It started every time I needed it to. It was four-wheel drive. It got in and out of snowbanks with no problems at all. And it was just fun and useful. I hauled stuff with it all the time. And and I was driving it, I would say, in like 2015, 2016. So it was quite old at that time uh, and mm-hmm. still, you know, taking abuse and having no problems. As to whether you need four-wheel drive, the only times I used it was because I was street parking it here in Montreal. We end up getting snowed in by plows. They create pretty big snowbanks. And to get in and out, I needed it for that. But I grew up driving pickup trucks with rear-wheel drive only. Uh, I never had a problem with it. Weight in the Tires. Back. Tires is the big thing, like so Sammy says. Where, where, where Ben grows up, they have mandatory tire um, laws, right? Yeah, yeah. Winter, you have to have winter tires, winter tires to, to drive so, here to... Invest in good tires if you're going to get a rear-wheel drive um, pickup truck. Right? And if you if and you, as you said, Steve, you only have if you get big dumps of snow every a couple times a year, you might want to wait for the plow to go by. You won't have to; it'll be less nerve-wracking. But with weight in the rear, you're probably going to be fine. I really did not have a lot of issues with it, uh, and I I think I had the I, I remember correctly I had the four liter engine. As you said, there are arguments both for and against. I didn't have any problems with mine. It's a tough call on that. I don't think the fuel economy is all that different between them, though. Um, and Sa- Sammy, there's one more question from Steve. Did you want to answer it about the uh, the new Countach? Oh, yeah. So what do you want to uh, – let me get some information on this Countach because I forgot uh, everything about it while you were talking about the Ranger. Um, but he basically wants to know what our thoughts are on the new Lamborghini Countach. Um, For me, I mean – it feels like a nostalgia-driven money grab because they just basically are building – what is it? Another um, – what's the, the platform they're using for this car? Huracan, essentially, I think. No, Huracan I don't think it's a Ventador. It's Sorry. a Ventador, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So it's like a reskinned Aventador, which is something Lamborghini has done a lot in the last five mm-hmm. or six years. It's a limited number. They're all sold out. It doesn't really look like a Countach. Um, so I'm not a huge supercar fan. I don't have a lot of politics about supercars. So whether they use an old name or not doesn't really bother me. Sammy, what do you think? I don't mind it. I think uh, cool. I mean, you know, if if you're trying to introduce something new, a new product, using the old name helps people turn their eye to you a little bit easier than a scrambled mess of numbers and letters um, or something that they don't associate with. So I think Lamborghini is trying to tell people that they still exist with an old car name and a product that um, features hybridization power uh, or hybrid powertrain and uh, a, a butt ton of power essentially a butt ton of power i hear that that's yeah. at the launch that's what they said on stage but with an italian accent um i think it looks kind of cool i don't think it looks that bad i don't see the i don't see very i i, I think they 
tried to make some, pay some homage to the original Countach, which is a very neat looking car. And I think we should reserve. I, I would personally like to reserve my my impressions of the car when I see it in person and drive it in person, which I'm looking forward to doing eventually. I don't know. All right. Now, if if you are out there listening and you want to hear our impressions on cars we actually have seen and driven in the past. Uh, you can do that by going to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. We have 240 episodes there for you to check out going back, I think, three or four years now. And uh, you can subscribe to us using either your favorite podcatcher, just search Unnamed Automotive Podcast, or you can grab us using one of the buttons that are on the website itself. We are pretty much everywhere, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, um, Android. I don't even think that's a thing anymore. Google, Google Podcasts, all yeah. of that stuff. We are there, and you will find us. Sammy, if people want to get in touch with us with questions like Steve and uh, Blake did this week, how would they do that? It's very easy. You go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, and you click on the contact form, you fill out the form, and it will land right in our inbox. Additionally, you can email us the old-fashioned way. The email address is benjamin at benjaminhunting.com. Or you can reach out to us on social media. You can find Ben on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. And Sammy, what are you going to be driving next week? I've got the Subaru Outback Wild- Wilderness Edition. Wilderness? Wilderness I like edition. Wilderness. Like, that's... <laughs> That's the real. If you're in the like, if if you're a real enthusiast, that's how you call it. The Subaru Outback Wilderness. That's and what I've got. I'm driving the BMW M4 competition, so I better figure out how much it costs, Sammy. <laughs> Very cool. I'm looking forward to hearing about that, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.